Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The likelihood that Russia will invade Ukraine seems to be growing by the day. We are hearing increasingly alarming rhetoric from senior Biden administration officials warning that an attack may be imminent. Just a day before I am recording this, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki said, quote, We are at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack in Ukraine. So, should Russia indeed attack Ukraine, how should the United States and Europe respond? Joining me to take on that question and more are four excellent speakers. I'm joined by Andrew Weiss of the Carnegie Endowment, Nina Jankowitz of the Woodrow Wilson Center, Jim Goldgeier of Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation, and Melinda Herring of the Atlantic Council. We recorded our conversation live on Twitter Spaces. The first 30 minutes or so feature my questions for Andrew, Nina, and Jim, after which Melinda Herring joins the conversation, offers some analysis, and very helpfully answers questions from listeners. Uh, Unlike conventional episodes, I've done a bit of editing to help condense down the conversation to a size that is more in line with my conventional podcast episodes. The entire space ran for like an hour, 45 minutes, the vast majority of which being questions and comments from the audience. But again, I've I've narrowed that down. And that's also the reason for the somewhat abrupt ending you'll hear at the conclusion of Melinda Herring's remarks. So huge thank you to our four speakers, and Andrew Weiss of the Carnegie Endowment is going to kick us off. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And Andrew, I wanted to start with you. First, can you briefly introduce yourself so folks can hear your voice? Hi there, Mark. It's Andrew Weiss. I'm Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment in Washington, D.C. Thanks, Andrew. So, Andrew, what has been happening on the Russian side of things, militarily and politically, these last few days that is provoking such deep concern in D.C. right now? So I think it's important for people to back up a little bit beyond the events the last couple of days and look at what's happening in Ukraine, as, as we've written in a recent paper, as the single biggest piece of unfinished business for Putin's long tenure as Russia's leader. And so for him, the idea of Ukraine today isn't so much that it is a threat. It's more this what they've described in Russian about the absorption, asfaenia uh, in Russian, of Ukraine into the West and the possibility that over time, the amount of money the West is providing to Ukraine for modernizing its military, intelligence, 
cyber and political subversion capabilities over time, that's going to be a threat to Russian national security. So in Putin's mind, if we were to be in his shoes, it's better to deal with that threat now at a time when he sees Europe divided, sees the possibility of a major political set of uh, bumps and crises that would await Joe Biden if this were all to happen, and the fact that it's not really a fair fight on the on the battlefield. So, so better to go now than maybe in ten years. Well, so, but what's happening now it, uh, militarily, for example? Why has like the tenor of alarm in DC just sharply increased? just over these last couple of days. Russia's put in place the forces that it would need to conduct a serious military operation against Ukraine. And what that operation will entail, we'll all find out at the same time. Um, it's possible that it could involve certain uh, disruptive tactics that look more like uh, something that's intended to shroud Russia's responsibility and therefore maybe create a pretext for military action. Um, there's possibility of steps to provoke the Ukrainians into a reaction, and that would, again, give the Russians pretext, or it could look like just a, a full-scale invasion. Um, but Russia has put in place all of the military tools it needs uh, to conduct a new major military operation. And then I think the thing over the weekend that really set people on edge was the arrival of Russian troops in Belarus, which basically sets in motion the possibility of another northern front, and it puts Russian forces within striking distance of Kiev. So, so basically, you have Russian forces on like three out of four sides of Ukraine at the moment. Yep, and you know, as I as I said a moment ago, there's 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 really a no easy way out of this trap that the Russians are putting the Ukrainians in. There's no way for the Ukrainians to overmatch what what the Russians are capable of doing militarily. And given that the United States and our NATO allies have all signaled really clearly that we don't intend to be directly involved militarily in this conflict, it's, it's, it's not a very promising picture for the Ukrainians. But then, we'll, you know, it all depends on what the Russian military goals are and the tools they would be using to, to achieve them. Uh, thanks. And Nina, I wanted to turn to you now. Could you briefly introduce yourself so folks can hear your voice? Hi, good afternoon, Mark. Good afternoon, everybody. Nina Jankowitz. I'm the Global Fellow at the Wilson Center, affiliated with the Kennan Institute and the Science and Technology Innovation Program. Most of my work focuses on disinformation, and I'm the author of the book, How to Lose the Information War. Uh, thanks. So, you know, it's often the case, or at least it seems from my perspective, that you know, Russian disinformation campaigns sometimes precede actual you know, ground invasions. Uh, what are we seeing right now in terms of Russian disinfo campaigns vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine? Yeah, you're absolutely right on that, Mark. I think Russia views the informational front as a critical front um, in all of its military operations. And that's not necessarily new, right? We All of our militaries do that to some extent, but they're very adept in Moscow at using the new technologies of social media to target the most vulnerable populations. Now, that looks a little bit different this time around than it did during the first uh, invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Back then, we saw a lot of bots, a lot of trolls, a lot of inauthentic amplification. Now we're seeing a lot more coming through official channels, because I think the target audience, in addition to 
domestic audience, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second. The target international audience is European and, and Western elites and changing kind of the, the narrative of um, and the framing of this conflict. So we've seen an uptick in Russian language media monitoring about Ukraine's supposed aggression or NATO expansion, which, again, is um, setting the stage for this conflict being about NATO. And that's what we've seen these discussions over the past couple of weeks focusing on rather than uh, the fact that Russia unilaterally is, um, you know, funding and, and perpetuating this conflict and building up troops on, on Ukraine's border um, and also priming the Russian population for a potential invasion. What's interesting, though, um, according to recent Levada Center polling, is that 50% of Russians don't believe a war with Ukraine is likely. Um, and it does seem a little bit like appetite for a war with NATO is increasing. That's about 25% up from 19% in 2019. But there's not a whole lot of support for this conflict among Russians right now. And so I think it's an important thing for, for Putin and his advisors to consider, you know, what is the cost of this going to be at home? Generally, President Putin has gotten a bump uh, with his foreign adventurism, but it's it, it's not so clear cut this time. Um, and, you know, with Russians coming back in body bags and the economic costs that the West is prepared to impose on Russia, I think, um, you know, the situation, as I said before, is a little bit murkier. And then one other thing that I'll mention, um, before we turn over to Jim, is that we have seen some interesting cyber activities in the last week that uh, really do resemble a lot of what we saw, let's say, in Estonia in 2007 or in the five-day war with Georgia in 2008, um, as well as at the beginning of the annexation of Crimea in 2014. A number of Ukrainian government websites were defaced, but behind that defacement, a lot of um, servers and computers were taken hostage um, in sort of ransomware attacks uh, demanding Bitcoin, kind of similar to what we saw with NotPetya in uh, 2017. So these sorts of activities generally do indicate uh, that some sort of uh, escalation is coming. The Ukrainians have pointed to the Russians. Um, other Western allies, the, the Brits and the United States, have not yet attributed the attack to Russia officially, although some officials have told me, uh, you know, we've seen this movie before, um, which I think, you know, points to one of my favorite quotes from an interlocutor that I interviewed in, in Estonia. Uh, if it smells like a dog and barks like a dog, it is probably a dog. So <laughs> I will leave you with that before we open it up more broadly. It's it's the duck test. That that's the iteration of that I've I've heard. Um, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims like a duck. So so, uh, Jim, given what Andrew said about what's happening politically and militarily, and what Nina has described as this sort of cyber and disinformation effort that seems to presage a an actual attack on uh, Ukraine. What has been happening sort of in the diplomatic space uh, over these last week or so to um, perhaps deter Russia from mounting this this attack. I know as we speak, uh, Secretary Blinken is in Kyiv. Uh, what can we expect from that meeting and a meeting later this week scheduled with the uh, foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, which I believe is happening in Vienna? Uh, so Jim, can you kind of paint the, the diplomatic space for us? And you'll need to unmute. So... Thanks for having me on. It's great to be with uh, with Nina and Andrew and and you. And um, so, you know, uh, the Russians put out these big demands, uh, you know, publicly seeking 
uh, new treaties, uh, new agreements with NATO and with the United States, uh, and demanding that the United States and NATO respond. Um, the the biggest demand was, uh, you know, a, a guarantee, some kind of legal guarantee, whatever that means, uh, that uh, NATO would not uh, take Ukraine in as a new member uh, anytime. And uh, there were also other demands as well with respect to deployments of missiles and and other military assets. And so what we saw last week was uh, a set of series of meetings, uh, the U.S. and within the context of their uh, strategic stability talks, uh, NATO and Russia had a meeting, uh, and then there was a meeting of uh, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. Um, Russians were rather dismissive of the uh, of the talks. Um, you know, the United States is trying to keep the uh, democracy, the the diplomacy going, um, and you have, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Secretary Blinken's of in Europe in Ukraine. Uh, I believe he'll be in in Berlin, uh, and then he's meeting with Foreign Minister uh, Lavrov. Uh, the German Foreign Minister uh, also met uh, with Lavrov. Yesterday, I, I mean, you know, the big question is sort of, you know, are these maximalist demands that Putin has put out that he knows NATO will not agree to? There, there's not going to be a NATO agreement that it will forswear ever taking Ukraine. Is just, That's just not the way NATO works. The original NATO treaty is open to any European state that can uh, meet the criteria of the alliance and contribute to alliance security. Uh, everyone knows that Ukraine is not on a path to membership. Um, there's no, uh, there's no way it's coming in um, anytime in the foreseeable future as a member of NATO. But NATO's not going to formally close the door. Um, I mean, the open door is is part and parcel of sort of of NATO's existence. And so, it, did Putin put that out there and and demand a a public response from the U.S. and NATO? because he knows it's going to be rejected and then that's a pretext? Um, or is it out there in the hopes that there are other things that can be negotiated? And the United States is perfectly willing to negotiate on issues like missile deployments, on scope and scale of military exercises, and on other confidence-building measures to account the security interests of NATO members of Ukraine and of Russia. Um, that, that's, that's something the United States and its NATO allies are willing to do. And the question is, you know, is Putin willing to have those kinds of conversations? Um, or uh, is he insisting on something that um, it's simply not there for him to get? So, I mean, as Blinken and Lavrov meet uh, later this week, I mean, is there in the realm of, of possibility, like a face saving diplomatic out for Russia at this point, given that they've already made this maximalist, uh, like, demand that Ukraine never be permitted to enter NATO? Well, so I guess the question is, is there diplomatic language? I mean, given that Ukraine is not coming in for the foreseeable future, but NATO's not going to be willing to say never, is there language that can be agreed upon that makes it clear that there's some kind of moratorium, whether, you know, whether NATO sort of agrees to that, whether Ukraine asks for that, in return for um, for something from Russia in terms of, of security guarantees. 
I, I mean, you know, given that they're they're not coming in um, any any time, uh, you know, presumably for the rest of Putin's presidency, uh, and um, uh, but NATO is not willing to say never. There's some kind of diplomatic language that can be found. It, it seems like there could be um, if the Russians were willing to to negotiate on what that language would be. Uh, so, Andrew, I wanted to turn back to you and ask you what suite of policy options are the Biden administration um, weighing right now? I mean, we've heard, for example, you know, Blinken and others warn of like very serious consequences. I don't know what exactly like the nomenclature were, but it's like, you know, a a serious response, a mega response of some sort. What are um, policy options to your knowledge uh, that the Biden administration is currently weighing? So the administration right now is looking at what the Russians are doing and basically like everyone else waiting and they keep saying it's all up to Putin. What they're hoping is that by calling attention to Russia's actions, the Russians are going to have to struggle to explain what they're doing. And so far the Russians have not been able to do that. They, they've you know, pointed to phantom threats um, and they claim that their military activities are just normal exercises. None of that is convincing. Um, in the meanwhile, the administration is trying to build maximum unity with European partners on a series of sanctions that could be imposed depending on what Russia does. Um, that's great, but we've seen plenty of sanctions since 2014. So the bar for sanctions to really shift Russia's strategic calculus here has to be set pretty high. At the moment, I think there's reluctance and division in Europe, particularly coming from the Germans, about how much pain to impose. And all of this is happening against the backdrop of concerns about the health of the global economy amid inflationary pressures and a very real energy crisis in Europe. Given Russia's central role as one of the key energy suppliers to Europe, there's going to be a lot of reticence, particularly from the Germans and other major economies, about imposing sanctions that might somehow trigger a Russian supply interruption where the Russians hold European gas supplies at risk or, or throttle them, um, as there's evidence they've been doing. So the administration is trying to talk about unity, trying to talk about massive costs, but we'll, we'll just have to see what, what comes out of uh, at the other end. I think there's plenty the U.S. and the United Kingdom can do unilaterally, particularly aimed at the Russian financial system and causing disruption there. But the Russians have been preparing for this day for the better part of eight years. And so they've been salting away uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, literally 640 or so billion dollars in their piggy bank, which is roughly equivalent to 40 percent of GDP. They've been detaching their economy from various nodes that might make it at risk of trouble if the United States, for example, were to try to seize Russia's assets uh, in U.S. banks, things like that. So the Russians have hardened themselves to make their economy less vulnerable, and they know that they have this get-out-of-jail card, which is their role as an oil and gas supplier to the world economy. So ultimately, the other track that the administration's talking a lot about is steps to help countries that are already in NATO by putting more U.S. forces or NATO forces there to reassure them as well as to beef up our ongoing military cooperation with Ukraine. All of those things, I think, are necessary and and reasonable, but they won't be sufficient for changing Putin's mind about whether to go. Uh, and I, I want to bracket 
that last response about what would be sufficient to change uh, Putin's mind uh, in in a moment. I want to, though, turn to Nina. Uh, you know, given that much of this conflict is is taking place in like the you know information space, as it's called, what are we seeing? from the United States and Europe in terms of like countering this disinformation and countering uh, cyber threats from Russia towards Ukraine at the moment? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I I will start by saying that um, I definitely think it's important to view the cyber threat and the informational threat or the influence operation threat separately. Um, Often cyber operations can inform influence operations, but they should be looked at and countered in two different ways. And we've been a little bit more active on the cyber front. Um, It's not something that is as politically divisive here in Washington. So it's a little bit easier to get the ball rolling on that. And of course, we've seen some pretty significant ransomware attacks in the United States over the past year, which have led to some movement in Washington. On the influence side, our allies in Europe have been a lot more active than the United States has been. And that is in part because of the politicization of disinformation and quote unquote fake news uh, during the Trump era um, and kind of the reticence of, of Congress in particular to act in ways that would allow uh, the the U.S. private sector to take more action against some of this content. We've seen Facebook and Twitter get a little bit more active in taking down, you know, inauthentic accounts, but there's still a very wide information laundering system that exists here in the States. Um, and that's our biggest weakness right now. These, these pre-existing fissures in society that countries like Russia are very, very happy to amplify and exploit. Um, in Europe, the UK has done a really good dr- job, I think, in encountering disinformation. They have made... Um, their national security doctrine based on this fusion doctrine, which brings in folks from across government, not just informational comms folks, but folks who are focused on foreign policy, folks that are focused on the financial sector, um, or even, you know, their, their scientists, um, working on, on things like poisonings. If you look at the Skripal poisoning in 2018, um, to really debunk and set a, um, a really I would say, compelling counter-narrative to what Russia is doing. So to use Skripal as an example, in 2018, when that happened, there was a lot of communication from various organs of the British government talking about all of the contradictory and ridiculous narratives that Russian officials and Russian media were putting out as to how the whole poisoning happened. And that kind of um, really depressed uh, the logic of, of Russia or the purported logic of Russia in in the public's mind. So they've been doing a good job. Um, and then, you know, I think there's just a lot more appetite politically to do counter-influence activities, um, to invest in things like resilience building in local populations. And what we've been seeing here in the United States in the last couple of weeks, to my dismay, has been a lot of, well, we should give Russia a taste of its own medicine and fight fire with fire. And I think that is really dangerous thinking. One of the best things we have on our side is the moral high ground, which we've seeded a lot of over the past couple of years, right? I don't think we should willingly give that away by creating these sort of false operations by parading as, you know, uh, Russians on the internet, the way that Russia has paraded as Americans by attempting to influence political processes and things like that. We should be responding with truth, be responding with, you know, investigative journalism, uncovering the ways that Putin and his cronies have stolen money from the Russian people. Um, all of that 
is going to be a lot more powerful than any, you know, hackneyed, um, really poorly put together meme that we can put on the internet. I I mean, that seems to be like a worthwhile long-term strategy, but in the near term, uh, like, you know, tomorrow, uh, Russia may well start to send troops over the Belarusian uh, Ukraine border, over the Eastern border. Uh, Jim, you know, Andrew sort of ended his remarks by uh, saying that essentially the suite of policy options available to the Biden administration and to Europe right now are generally insufficient to dissuade uh, Russia, Putin, from mounting this invasion. And as Nina articulated, like the long game is a long game. Like tomorrow, as I said, Russia could could invade. What can or should the United States do should Russia tomorrow send troops over the border? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the United States and its NATO allies are then just going to be put in a position where they're basically sort of doing some version of the containment policy that we had during the Cold War, where we're trying to shore up uh, NATO allies, uh, also, you know, providing uh, more um, military assistance to you so that it can uh, defend itself as as best it can, which, you know, obviously is, you know, it's going to be um, very difficult for them to do that in the face of a of a Russian military assault. Um, and the as Andrew pointed out, I, I, I mean, there will be additional sanctions put on. Uh, Putin presumably has already priced that in. So if, you know, if he decides to go, he will already have priced in the um, the expectation of a sanctions. So, you know, the, the options aren't great. Um, and, you know, just getting back to the whole diplomacy side, which I think the U.S. has, has done pretty well in recent weeks, uh, the, the, you know, if this was just a discussion about European security, I think there would be things available to have a conversation that could continue and could address security concerns on all sides. But if this is about Putin wanting to bring Ukraine into the fold, uh, and, you know, ending the possibility of it functioning as an independent, successful, independent country, if he wants regime change in Ukraine, if it's really about those things internal to Ukraine and, and Russia's relationship with Ukraine, then there's not a lot that the United States can do. Um, and so the question is, you know, is that the driver um, or is there some possibility that uh, he really does want to have a serious conversation on European security? I guess maybe one question for for Nina and Andrew, you know, that that sort of diplomatic nuclear option is it would be what like swift banking sanctions against Russia. Is that plausible? Nina, I don't know if you're following this, Andrew, I don't know if you're following this, but the idea to essentially, you know, use America's control over the international banking systems through SWIFT uh, to shut Russia out from the system. Yeah, to my knowledge, the Biden administration has taken swift sanctions off the table. Um, but there are a lot of folks, and I would be interested to hear Andrew's opinion on this as well, who focus on, you know, kleptocracy and um, anti-corruption measures that say directed sanctions at particular Russian banks, as well as high-level Russian officials, might be more effective in the long term. Again, whether they're enough to shift Putin's calculus, only Putin can answer. Uh, Andrew, 
I mean, is, is that is Swift off the table, as Nina suggested? And you know, more broadly, if indeed Russia invades Ukraine you know, tomorrow, how should the U.S. and Europe respond? What would be an optimal policy option? There's all this fixation on silver bullets, and SWIFT has become one of those big silver bullets. The other one is the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline between Russia and Germany. Um, and so there's a lot of myth-making about these steps. Um, SWIFT is a, just for people who haven't focused on how the international payment system works, it's a messaging service. It's not the mechanism by which a Russian bank accesses dollars or actually settles a transaction with a counterparty. It's a way of communicating the details of a transaction. And it's been used as a pressure point against smaller economies like Iran. Um, so there's precedent for doing it. But the idea that you could somehow, you know, neato presto detach Russia from the global economy with that single tool is is misplaced. And that, you know, on the day it happens, there would be some disruption. But within a you know very short period of time, there are other mechanisms, including a Chinese uh, alternative system that Russia could sign up for, or they could just pull out the old fax machines and telex machines that they have in their closets to conduct various types of commercial operations. Um, the the challenge for the Biden administration is, you know, is actually getting harder as the course of this taping uh, of your podcast, Mark, unfolds. I, there's a, a story that just appeared in the Financial Times website. Oh, is oh, you dropped off. Europeans basically okay. need. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. Yes, yes. The Financial Sorry. Times website. I've, I've, so I've been focusing has, exclusively has article, on this space. What, what happened? Has an article out in the last few minutes saying that the French President Macron today has proposed a separate European security pact between Europe and the Russians, and basically, you know, putting a pretty big wedge between what the United States is trying to accomplish between the U.S. and Europe on the one hand, and Russia on the other. So, you know, we didn't need the Russians to plant the wedge. We have we have the French president doing it. Um, that is, the I think, the most challenging part of this is how do you get different parts of Europe to see the threat we're all facing from Russian uh, revision, uh, aggression and revisionism and the fact that the Russians mean business and are willing to go to war to accomplish very, you know, destabilizing goals. Um, sanctions are a tool, but they can't be the, the replacement for an effective policy that both shores up military deterrence that, as Jim alluded to, helps contain and constrain dangerous Russian activities and capabilities, and that helps countries that are caught between the two who are on this, you know, this kind of gray zone between where NATO is and where Russia is, helps them manage a very complicated and dangerous security situation. There aren't going to be, as I said a second ago, silver bullet tools in Joe Biden's backpack. What he's going to be dealing with is a question of sort of less bad tools and less bad outcomes as he manages through this problem. And then the final part of this, which is, I think, not getting enough attention, are the domestic political ramifications. And will a war in Ukraine trigger the kind of political partisan theater that we saw after uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, I'm not a U.S. politics person, but something tells me that that there will be a serious domestic component to all of this. Uh, thank you, and and Nina and Jim, in our our final minute, um, are there any particular 
events or inflection points that will suggest to you in the coming days how this situation will unfold? Uh, you know, except, of course, you know, Russia actually sending troops over the border. Is there any other sort of signals that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you how this situation may unfold? And, and Nina, I'll start with you. Yeah, one thing we're going to be monitoring in the disinformation space uh, or the information space, as it were, is looking at some of the open source um, kind of movements of, of troops and military equipment and seeing how that's telegraphed by officials and, and advisors to the Kremlin. Um, I think when we see an echo of some of the same narratives uh, coming from sources closer to Putin. I'm not talking about like Maria Zakharova or any officials, but um, folks that are giving him advice. I think that'll be an indication that things are kind of escalating. So looking for that coordinated um, response of both kinetic and informational, um, uh, you know, assets. Uh, thanks. And Jim, what are you monitoring in the coming days or weeks? Well, I'm most interested in whether the Russians are continuing to be willing to have conversations with Western and, and particularly American counterparts, like the meeting between Secretary Blinken and Foreign Minister Lavrov later this week. There were Russian officials who described last week's meetings as, you know, a dead end and, you know, that they didn't do um, what was, uh, you know, what was needed. And, um, you know, are the Russians willing to continue talking? Will they continue to set uh, set up new meetings uh, to follow, um, to have real negotiations, or uh, are they going to just, you know, pull the plug on that? Um, uh, you know, if they pull the plug on further conversations, then uh, I think we can ex we can expect the expect the worst. Uh, well, Jim, Nina, and Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm going to turn the mic over to Melinda. Go ahead, Melinda. Hey, Mark, thanks for the chance to be here. Hi, Andrew, Nina, and Jim. Uh, this was a fabulous discussion, and I love uh, the opportunity to play cleanup. Um, so I have I have six little points. Um, I, I think you asked some great questions, Mark. The first one was, why is everyone freaking out in Washington now? And the, the answer is that it, we've reached a point of no return. It's pretty clear that the open-door policy that it is not going to fly. Uh, and we just fundamentally disagree uh, with Moscow about NATO membership. And there's no cute diplomatic way around that. Um, another piece that is really interesting that I'm watching is what's the mood like in Europe in Kiev? And the mood in Kiev is a mix of fatal, fatalism and disinterest. So we have a guy on the ground there, and I would encourage uh, people to watch Vladislav Davidison's posts. He's in Kiev now, and he, whenever he tries to talk to people about the Russian escalation, uh, they don't want to talk to him, or they say, it's you know, we've lived with it for eight years. This is no big deal. Um, and then Europe itself doesn't seem to be uh, as anxious about this as we do. You also asked what would change Putin's mind, and it has to be a mix of deterrence and sanctions. It's not just sanctions, and that's where the Biden uh, administration, I think, is screwed up. They haven't provided enough deterrent, and uh, our speakers are right that SWIFT is off the table. If Putin were to go into Ukraine, uh, we should cancel Nord Stream 2 immediately. We should have done that before, but we should do it now, and the U.S. should support the Ukrainian insurgency with weapons, training, and intelligence. And the thing that I'm watching is the uh, military drills in Belarus in February. I think that will show, you know, if Putin hasn't gone into Ukraine before then, I, I think that's a, a data point to watch. Thanks a lot for the chance to be here. 
can you what are these military drills in Belarus and why are they uh, that potential inflection point uh, for a potential invasion? So a lot of the military planners, there's a really excellent report that I'd recommend your readers check out. It's called Russia's Possible Invasion of Ukraine. And it talks about the different ways that Russian troops could go in. And one way is through Belarus. So the worry now is now that there are Russian troops, a lot of Russian troops in Belarus, uh, that uh, that could be a date uh, by which they would strike. There's supposed to be, a, you know, an ordinary um, military drill in February, but a lot of people are worried it's not ordinary. The other piece, too, though, uh, Mark, that we haven't talked about is a Ukrainian insurgency. So if Russia goes in big time with the Air Force, with tanks, they can do whatever they want in Ukraine. Uh, they, they can take Ukraine very quickly. They cannot hold Ukraine very quickly. So this is one of the big issues that a lot of analysts are looking at is how deep would the insurgency run? There's some new polling that's very interesting. It says that only 9% of Ukrainians would go abroad. More than 50% of people would fight or engage in some kind of civil disobedience. So I, I think that's another factor that Putin is weighing as well when he tries to decide what to do. Well, well, that actually, um, Alex, please stick around as, as a, a speaker as well uh, to field some questions if you're able. But Melinda, I mean, your, your comment, I mean, so Putin is supposed to be this great strategist, right? Yet recent history has demonstrated that invading and occupying a foreign country tends to not end well. Uh, so it's like the end game here uh, of Putin. I guess that he's trying to bully the West. I get that he has these like ideological aspirations of, of greater Russia and to you know fold Ukraine into its sphere, his sphere of influence. But like when push comes to shove, it seems like it's going to be you know very difficult to occupy Ukraine with Russian troops. Not difficult, impossible. You have to remember, uh, this This is year eight of the war, uh, and Ukrainians know how to fight and they know how to resist. If you look at the history of Ukraine, uh, I, I don't think Putin can take the whole country. I think he could go to the Dnieper. It's the river that splits uh, Kiev. Uh, but then past the Dnieper, partly as a result of history and geography, the, the landscape gets more mountainous. Uh, and, and there's just a very strong sense of identity. Uh, and there would be an enormous uh, insurgency. So he knows he has these limitations. Another piece, though, and I'd be curious to hear what Alex has to say, is I, I Ukraine has changed a lot since the Euromaidan in 2014. And I don't think Moscow really understands modern Ukraine very well. So I think there is a possibility that Moscow will make will miscalculate and they'll screw up. They'll assume that there's greater support for Moscow uh, because there was maybe there was in the past, but there's been a, a massive change in Ukraine. This new sense of identity that transcends East West, transcends land, language, and uh, it transcends uh, it, it transcends religious identity as well. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to our four speakers. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like this issue is going away anytime soon. I will return and revisit uh, this crisis as it unfolds in the coming weeks for sure. And just uh, again, a note on this Twitter space. So like thousands of people participated in this space. And one thing that I really appreciated was how good the audience is. So just to, to give you a little anecdote, um, 
So Melinda, ahead of time, agreed to stay on to answer questions, but there were like lots and lots of people in the space. She told me ahead of time, at time she had to leave. Uh, other people in the space who are also Ukraine-Russia experts affiliated with yeah, think tanks and journalism outlets stepped up and started to field questions as well. Again, just drives home how wonderful uh, the audience is that is congregated around this podcast and around uh, now the, the Twitter space. This is an audience of, of foreign affairs professionals. And just thank you so much for tuning in and staying with this podcast for so long. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.